0: The world has changed. Much that once was, is lost. In the final days of the Soviet Union, Kraniteli, a made-for-television film, was forged based on a book that had often been banned in the USSR, J.R.R. Tolkien's The Fellowship of the Ring. Yet the film was shown only once on television, it was betrayed by the fall of the Soviet Union and disappeared into the vaults of the now-defunct Leningrad television. And some things that should not have been forgotten were lost. For three decades, the film passed out of all knowledge, until it was posted again in, let's face it, the likeliest platform imaginable. the time has come when YouTube will shape the fortunes of all low-budget made-for-television movies, and even low-budget podcasts that cover said low-budget movies can find a wider circulation than they probably deserve. I was
1: pointing
2: out last time that the Christian life is simply a process of having your natural self changed into a Christ self.
0: Welcome back to the Inklings Variety Hour, where fans and scholars of C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien, Charles Williams, Owen Barfield, and others discuss their works and lives. I'm Chris Pipkin, addict of Tolkien, admirer of low-budget films, and Slavophile. And with me, I have Cora Burton, by day, an administrative staff member in Moorhead Honors College at the University of Georgia. By night, a senior editor at zeldadungeon.net, and an amateur linguist and folklore enthusiast somewhere in between. Cora, how are you doing?
2: Doing great. I am still turning this very cool special over in my brain. I I just watched it last night.
0: Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm fresh from watching, from finishing it uh, as well. I, I did it in the hours before this this podcast so so yeah I'm excited to to talk about it and you say amateur linguist but you 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 have some you have some cred right and- yeah
2: yeah I got my master's it's- in historical linguistics from UGA I also I mean my connection to you is that I did my English literature degree at Emmanuel College and and there you know had my first experience introduction to history of the English language so from there I just kind of couldn't stop
0: that's awesome And I am very humbled to think that you went on to become a linguist after taking a class from someone who is actually amateurish when it comes (laughs) to linguistics. So yeah, that's awesome. And you wrote your master's thesis on what again?
2: Tolkien's Cauldron of Story and applying it to basically a diachronic study of different linguistic terms, particularly in the Germanic languages. So it was very fun to do. It's odd now. That it feels like it's kind of been a while since I wrote that. And yet, you know, at the time it, it very much consumed my life.
0: <laughs> yeah, as as these things do for sure. So I called Cora in to talk about uh this special that was posted on YouTube in 2021, which and 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 the title is Kranitelli. Do you happen to know if I'm pronouncing that? I'm sure I'm pronouncing it wrong, but I'm, am I pronouncing it like horribly wrong?
2: Oh, you know, I'm, I'm not a great person to ask. My knowledge of Russian begins and ends with one course I took in old church Slavic, which was very fascinating, but I, you know, I think we're going to do our best.
0: Okay. Okay. Sounds good. Yeah. That's, that's more, that's one more course than me. I have a few, I have a. Free course in Czech under my belt from when I was teaching in Prague, which is, you know, closer to Russian than English is, but it's uh, (laughs) it's still not Russian. So, Kranitel, I'm going to, I'm going to call it, which just means the keepers. And uh, basically what the intro was about was, was that this was made in the final year that the Soviet union was a thing around 30 years ago, this was made using the only authorized version of Tolkien's work in Russian, right? Everything, all the other translations of Tolkien in in Russian were samizdat, which means they were contraband. Um, And so they were allowed to translate The Fellowship of the Ring. The people who made the movie obviously did not, but they used the translation made in 1982 by a Kistiakovsky. Kistiakovsky and Muravyov, and I believe, was that also called Kranitelli, or am I making that up? I think it was. But Listeners, if you have not uh, seen this, and you are interested in weird stuff that has to do with Tolkien, you should definitely check it out. It is about two hours long. It's very different from the treatment of the Lord of the Rings film that, you know, most of us know, you know, part of that difference is related to the fact that the Peter Jackson films have a very high budget. Uh, this did not have a high budget and it was filmed over, I think it was nine hours total you worked on filming this. At least I think that's, there's a, there's a great article about this and about the most, most of the articles I read on this, essentially I'll say the same thing, but there's an article by Variety that actually interviews the people that helped make this. And they talked about, you know, how, how little time they actually had to spend, you know, they have like an hour of rehearsal. Part of the context here is that Leningrad television very often, when they would put on adaptations, they would be stage adaptations that they would film. The director of Kraniteli, whose name is
2: Natalia Serbryakova.
0: So, directed by Natalia Serbryakova, who also adapted the script from the authorized Russian translation of Lord of the Rings, basically decided that, oh, hey, Jonathan.
1: Hey, I'm so sorry. How are you doing? Yeah, no worries. Okay.
0: I totally forgot that you sent me an email saying you'd actually be able to come, but you'd come late. Something else must have happened suddenly. And But yeah, now I remember. So Jonathan, this is Cora. Cora, this Hi, is Cora. Jonathan. Hi, um, nice to meet you. Cora does does work on Tolkien, has done work on Tolkien in, in linguistics. Jonathan has written a novel and also is interested in philology. So yeah. That overlaps. Yeah. You nope. Know, you nope. Know, so just giving a bit of the context of the film.
1: I actually, I, I don't know much about it. And and I feel like I'm too young. I'm 40 years old. So I was like eight or nine when the Soviet Union was falling apart. Uh-huh. Yeah. and I was aware of those things, but. Yeah. Know, Cora,
0: like, how old know. were you when the Soviet Union collapsed? <laughs> Where were you? Do you remember?
2: I was a breath on the wind. <laughs>
0: <laughs> this
2: predates me by a few years.
0: I don't remember exactly when the Soviet Union collapsed. I talked to a lot of, I spent some time in Romania uh, and I talked to a lot of people who remember when in 1989, Romania stopped being communist. And then they were like, you know, it was just an incredibly tumultuous time. And this is part of the variety article that I, that I read, you know, this, this is part of what it also says to keep in mind, which is that like, yes. In many ways, this film really suffers in comparison to the, you know, to the Jackson trilogy, right? But at the same time, these are actors who are, who are mainly theater actors. They right. are they they do television productions. Usually, those television productions are uh, filmed plays, right? So so filmed on sets. With not much of a budget to speak of, but the but the primary thing is the theater, you know, the theatrical production, and and many of the actors actually still are active in theater at the gosh, in what's now Saint Petersburg was was Leningrad, and so so many of them are still like well-known actors in that city.
1: That makes a lot of sense already of it, yeah, and distinguishes it from almost any other. Not only production of version of Lord of the Rings that anyone might have seen in the West, but also ever probably would see because we don't film theater anymore. right? Not not in the U.S. And that explains a lot about their mannerisms, just to know Mm -hmm. that. And if you're not familiar with or just not used to watching filmed theater, it's and I'm not, I confess. When I first saw that, (laughs) the Soviet one, I thought. This is awful. I mean, uh-huh. this, this isn't how you're supposed to act for a screen. Yeah. Because um, in, in on stage, in person, without the benefit of a camera and the, all the crazy things with optics that lenses can do, the mannerisms of actors have to be much exaggerated yeah. in order to be visible to everyone in the audience. And it's just a completely different, I mean, I'm not knowledgeable about acting in theater, but it's just a completely different medium. Yeah. Yeah,
0: the director Natalia Serabryakova, I think it's the name. She she actually like they they could have gone with just like a straight up filmed play, and and that's the basis. But they worked in a lot of what were at the time cutting edge special effects.
1: <laughs> Well, right. <laughs> Were they? Were they? So, this is what I was wondering about. They looked like they were from about 20 years before. I mean, yeah, like it looked pretty far behind what was happening in Western stuff. I mean, think about other yeah. things that were produced around that time in in the, in the U.S. or the UK. Right.
2: Or
1: yeah, someplace.
0: absolutely. I mean, this is 1991. This is the year that USSR is falling they don't know where their next meal is coming from. Right. Much less like where to get good special effects. And, and yeah, I mean, generally there's about a 20 year lag in terms of styles and and things like that. Right. And even technology. I remember going to Romania in the early 2000s and yeah, I mean, generally even, even in terms of style, you know, it, it was about people looked like the 80s or the early, early 90s, right? It, yeah. is, you know, there's, there's, there's a bit of a lag there. And, and, and there are also probably other directions that they're going in as well in terms in terms of their styles. But, but yeah, I mean, in terms of technology, they don't have the budgets that Western, you know, countries do. And a lot of people that I've seen write about these movies have been like, oh yeah, only 10 years later, we had like the Peter Jackson films, right? Which are amazing. But the Peter Jackson films they come from a essentially stable country with lots and lots of money to throw at something like this.
1: Well, and also a country that our culture that hugely prioritizes realism. Yeah. And and the Peter Jackson films are just straight realist cinema. Mm-hmm. They're, they're striving as hard as they can to help you imagine what, what would, what would the Tolkien stories look like if they really happened? Right. And, and they're trying to actually be physically realistic. Yep. And that's clearly the complete opposite of the goal of the of the Soviet film. And not just visually, but in something else you probably want to talk about, the the rather prominent intrusion. Well, I call it an intrusion. It's, it would seem that way to many western viewers of the narrator which has the same exact effect as the the visual special effects, crude though they might have been, to very forcibly remind the viewer that this is fiction. This is a story. This is not, you don't get to pretend that this is really happening. That's not the point of this. So, yeah, theater is like that in general, because you can see the stage. You know it's being acted. It's not immersive escapist let's just make this so believable that you can sink into it while it's happening and pretend it's real it has a completely different approach to the ontology of the art so yeah it's something something to think about and i have to admit like when i first watched the the soviet film i I mean, as we used to say, I was doing it for shits and giggles. I, I wanted to make fun yeah. of it. No, yeah, just, yeah, 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 absolutely. I was, was like, look, look how incredibly, no wonder their country was falling apart. Like, you know, they can't even, they can't even make the Peter Jackson talking. <laughs> 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 yeah, Peter Jackson yeah. <laughs> totally unfair, a totally unfair approach that I'm guilty of and it really deserves comparison not with the Peter Jackson stuff but more with those other animated or partially animated what's the term for it when it's like animated but with like some real yeah
0: rotoscoped
1: (laughs) if you say so (laughs) (laughs) yeah I'm sure
0: like the Bakshi film and the and the other one which
1: yeah which went to the same same point in the story yeah Yep. the Fellowship of the Ring one. Yeah, and then or the Animated Hobbit from the same time, 78 or yeah. something.
0: Oh, I think I think those are much higher production quality than than this as well.
1: Oh, sure, but their um they're, the aesthetic aims yeah. are are much yes. more comfortable. Whereas yes. they just aren't with the Peter Jackson films.
0: Well, I mean, they're one of the things of
1: that
0: Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I sort of, you know, that I sort of noted as well about this was that, you know, it's not so much. I mean, yes, by our standards today, by the standards of like the golden age of television that we're all living through, right? This is pretty basic, right? It seems more basic and it seems more laughable because of the amazing achievements, you know, made by Peter Jackson in the in the trilogy, where he found a way to film fantasy that nobody else had ever done, where he's he's you know, not only is it very high budget but also he's taking it so so seriously and and as, as you said Jonathan filming it in a in a hyper realistic way most of the other fantasy that was filmed or put on tv or whatever before that yeah maybe the budget was a little higher than than the soviet Kranitelli, right but it was equally kind of like, oh, yes, you know, these are stories for children. We're not going to try really hard to make them that believable, right, to to really convince you that they're actually happening. So it's more of a testament, uh, I think, to how excellent the Jackson films were or how different the Jackson films were than than anything really about how, you know, low quality the you know, the Soviet Fellowship of the Rings is. It's, it's, it's low quality but it's it's laughable mainly because of comparison with the jackson films
1: so that that brings up an interesting question for me though chris because i asked both of you this so if 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 the if the jackson films are an improvement upon anything that has been done before because they're more realistic and then and and from that we might sort of surmise that he takes the fantasy more seriously rather than how I would prefer to put it, which is to just say that it's a completely different genre of of film. It has a totally different idea of what art is supposed to do or like how it's supposed to function. It's supposed to be immersive and therefore escapist. Well, that's the other way to take it. You could say, it's giving more respect to the fantasy. It's treating it as if it's the same as reality. Or you could say, anytime you do that with art, you are using it as an immersive escapist tool so that the audience can forget that it's art and pretend that it's real and sink into it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Tolkien has some strong words about that in in his own writing. He calls it enchantment, elvish enchantment. And he talks about drama and the theater. And, And so what he describes elvish enchantment as is basically in the essay that he wrote in the 1930s okay before tv is basically what television or film would be i mean obviously they had film then but i don't think he went to a lot of movies and he describes that as a drama that gets put on by the fairies that feels so real you get sucked into it and you 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 think it's true you know, it's 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 an enchant it it, it beguiles you. And that's basically what how what we think TV good TV is. You know, if I get sucked into it, if I have to binge watch it, if I can forget my life while I'm watching it, that means it's good. It's doing yeah. its job. And that's what Tolkien was suspicious of. so i I have a bit of a different take on it. But so if 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 like it is, let's just say, I don't want to take away from Jackson's achievement because I think it very much is one. But if that is sort of the better way to do things, would there ever be any value in, do you guys think, in watching a filmed or just in person watching a staged presentation of all or part of any of of Tolkien's stories? Would, Would there be value in that? from watching a a screen adaptation because if you're talking about these guys as actors for the the stage it makes me think like well why do I just sort of automatically react to that question myself saying no that would be stupid why would I waste my time with that I want to see what you can make this look like on a screen or I want to use my head and imagine it for myself from the page but I don't want to see it up on a stage with all these tacky props and stuff and having to like change the scene and everything and a curtain and all that and actors playing like multiple roles because it's just why does that seem not not desirable i yeah yeah i, I don't know
0: yeah Corey do you have yeah, any thoughts
1: rant i'll shut up now
2: no no, no you're good like there. i I like that you used the word enchantment because it really feels like the Jackson trilogy, especially, almost papers over the original content for a lot of people and enchants you into believing that that is the authoritative version, right? Uh, And so returning to other versions or interpretations from the text is a way to kind of disenchant yourself from that illusion, which is very valuable. Like I, I... wish I took in more versions of Tolkien's work than just, you know, like, oh, you know, a Return of the King is on, it's Thanksgiving, let's go watch this. And then I forget that they left out such and such scene or they moved things around because this is just the version that I know the best. What about you, Chris?
0: Yeah, I'm, fi- I'm finding the, in, in fairy stories, trying to find what Jonathan was referring to, I know in, in one place... I'm not sure if this is is what Jonathan was talking about, but uh, Tolkien says fantasy, even of the simplest kind. He, he, first, he says, but drama is naturally hostile to fantasy. Fantasy, even to the sim- even of the simplest kind, hardly ever succeeds in drama when that when um, when that is presented as it should be, visibly and audibly acted. Fantastic forms are not to be counterfeited. Men dressed up as talking animals may achieve buffoonery or mimicry, but they do not achieve fantasy. This is, I think, well illustrated by the failure of the bastard form pantomime. The nearer it is to dramatized fairy story, the worse it is. It is only tolerable when the plot and its fantasy are reduced to a mere vestigiary framework for farce and no belief of any kind in any part of the performance is required or expected of anybody. This is, of course, partly due to the fact that the pro- producers of drama have to or try to work with mechanism to represent either fantasy or magic. And then he goes on um but yeah just
1: after that he so i think he he sets that up he says normally the stage what i was just saying the stage is so clunky Mm -hmm. it's just going to be ridiculous if you try to make fantasy he says that but with sort of i can rephrase it in like more usual language that we would use if within the logic of a fiction within the story A a fairy, uh, fairies can do drama too, and Mm -hmm. their drama works better. Yeah, they do it without the clunkiness of a stage. They can do it so that you actually think it's real. In other words, to my way of thinking, they do it as good as if it's TV. Modern TV.
0: Yeah. If you are present at a fairy and drama, you yourself are, or think that you are, bodily inside its secondary world. The experience may be very similar to dreaming and has it would seem sometimes by men been confounded with it but in fairy and drama you are in a dream that some other mind is weaving and the knowledge of that alarming fact may slip from your grasp
1: i think that's exactly what most producers of television and film are striving to do
0: yeah yeah that's really interesting
1: fairy and drama for their viewers
0: yeah Um, and we know he had a we know he did watch motion pictures right he yeah, I, occasionally like he he was very disappointed with snow white and the seven dwarves um, right. <laughs> as was as was lewis because the dwarves are wrong but uh, yeah so I, I I wonder that i wonder i mean motion pictures are already happening by the time he writes fairy stories i'm not sure if he's seen snow white or snow white has come out yet
1: around that uh, time and yeah i think so i think so but yeah no clearly obviously you have film at that point although it would have been much you know, harder of access than it is for us. We just flip on Netflix or whatever and we can watch whatever we want. Yeah. And, you know, he probably saw a handful of of films in his lifetime and it would have been always in the theater. So it would have been, if anything, even more probably impressed that point of how enchanting it can be. Perhaps in time, the ubiquity and ease of watching things on a screen huge screen in one's own home will actually serve to undo the enchanting power of stuff on the screen. But yeah, I don't think that's happened yet. But yeah, I mean, I just, it's just something that occurs to me. Maybe to think about like, so what you were saying, Cora, like those Peter Jackson films do alter the, the, the stories significantly or, well, I mean, they're going to choose to focus on certain things and above all, they have a certain feeling to them. And I guess, like you said, it's almost it feels like the authoritative version because I I think there's a almost a consensus that like he got it right. That's how the stories actually feel, isn't it? I mean, they, they they you sort of I wouldn't exactly say I actually pictured anybody that way or or imagine their accents and voices the way that they are in the film precisely, but just the overall aesthetic of it seems like an accurate translation. I remember yeah, watching.
2: Go ahead. go ahead Cora okay in a way that the subsequent Hobbit trilogy did not feel as authentic a translation right, right? like he really got it right book. that time
1: yeah it's oh, a, a completely different kind of writing
0: he had to make the tone yeah. match the Lord of the Rings films and the tone of the Hobbit does not match the Lord of the Rings
1: book so
0: that's uh, yeah yeah and and also it's just not a very good movie compared to no <laughs>
1: compared but so- to the
0: the lord of the rings trilogy
1: but with the soviet one so you know with this it's like okay we not only are we watching this thing made by theater actors at a politically fraught moment in their nation's history but that nation is a not like completely western nation <laughs> it's right. it's this, this crazy liminal civilization that's you know christian and its roots but it's Asiatic as well in in, in certain ways. And like, it's just, it's Eastern to a degree and has its own very strong folk traditions that Mm -hmm. just as they were in Northern and Western Europe in the 19th century were very deliberately sort of studied and revived at different times in the modern period by Russian writers and artists. So, you know, Tolkien gets into gothic and proto-Germanic and all this stuff, northernness, and, and just thinking of like making a mythology for England and that's where all this stuff comes from. It's a very, it's a very Anglo-Saxon project with, with a strong like Celtic infusion it has virtually nothing of the Slavic in it. And the direction of east for Tolkien is usually a a bad direction, an ominous direction. There's incredible. I've been thinking a lot about this lately. In in the entire legendarium, there's this incredible momentum west. He makes yeah. Thoreau look tame by comparison in his magnetic pull west. And Thoreau said, "Westward, I go free." I mean, it's it's a, it's it's just it's shocking to me. Whereas east, when people go east in Tolkien. And south to some degree but especially east they're getting in trouble they're, they're good get- yeah on the also west. Ondors- also north <laughs> north too, n- too, north north, is, north uh, is but, i mean north is frozen. Yeah. it's just going to be yeah 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 in the northern hemisphere but because that was um, where
0: morgoth used to hang out before the you yeah. know before the world was broken
1: yeah the lonely mountain is pretty far in the north and no, it has to be won by by force. And yeah. Uh, but yeah, but there's so, this is, this, uh, this kind of antipathy towards the things east. Not far east. Not like I mean, that's where the elves come from originally. Quiviana is like China or something. <laughs> but but like the the nearer eastern world is is trouble in Tolkien in, in the Arthurian poem. Arthur's going east. He's going to carry yeah. the battle to the not the Russians. Admittedly, it's not the Baltic Crusades or right. something. But like, right he's going east to fight them in their homeland the the saxons and so and here we are watching this film made by russians so i don't know do you do you guys like is is there any like awkwardness there is there how how do you think they dealt with that and did they like i mean do we even have like, like an accurate translation of what's being said <laughs> especially when the narrator's talking i i i don't even know i mean but that's yeah. a very Russian part of it, is that storyteller part. I,
0: I do not know Russian. Uh, I do know that Russians were very, they were very excited about The Lord of the Rings. There are a lot of some is dots, unauthorized versions yeah. of Tolkien's works that were circulated, often handwritten, because you can trace typewritten manuscripts, the, the uh, powers that were in the Soviet Union were suspicious of Tolkien's work, so of course they banned it for the most part Why because it seemed to be, it seemed to be about individualist, uh, more sort of Western countries, you know, overthrowing like a, a more sort of uh, less individualistic Eastern power.
1: Autocracy. <laughs> uh, yeah,
0: yeah, and that was you know they they're suspicious of a lot of things, and and it's sort not so so much like I need to give a reason why this should be banned as I need to give a reason why this should be allowed to come in. Right. Mm -hmm. And so finally in 1982, an official version of the fellowship of the ring is published. They're fine with fellowship of the ring because it's less explicitly political or less, less seems like less of a possible allegory than the two towers or return of the king are so we never get the scouring of the Shire, you know, admitted into uh, the, the Soviet Union, but we do get Kraniteli, the the keepers of the ring, the Fellowship of the Ring, and but you know Russians were and still are crazy about Tolkien, especially after the Jackson film came out. They they and and I noticed this in in when I was living in the Czech Republic as well. They really love cosplaying. Uh, in, in the Czech Republic, at least, you know they'll they'll dress up like you know, fantasy characters and go around in, in the wilderness, dressed up as Vikings or elves or whatever. It sounds like from what I've read, they do the same thing in Russia. So the the films and, and Tolkien's books had a had a huge presence in the Soviet Union. And I know at least in, in the Czech Republic, they were they were viewed as sort of an implicit critique of totalitarian power right so they were quite popular in the Czech Republic at least at least that's a that's an interview I've I've read and I imagine among college students at like say Moscow University they were being read and being passed around whether you know whether in English or in an unauthorized Russian version I'm sure the version from 1982, diminishes some things that could be seen as anti-communist i don't know about the eastern thing and and to what extent that's a that's a problem for them yeah it's it's possible of course that there's also suspicious of people to the east of them right as well as to the west of them so
1: I mean, you know, to some um, extent i don't know uh, like uh, yeah i don't know to what extent it would be visible to someone who's not a little obsessed with geography the way i am maybe i'm, I'm reading too much into it but yeah, yeah. I don't know. Mark Wood's giant, dangerous forest to the east. <laughs> it's just, it just—it sounds a lot like Russia. But yeah, that's. But they only had the Fellowship of the Ring. Did they? They never had a complete translation. Once, well, yeah. once the Soviet oh, Union fell. Well,
0: yeah, they did. So in the 1990s, they got the Two Towers and the Return of the King in Russian, translated by one of the two translators who translated okay. Kraniteli. But it's yeah, they they had to wait for for those other two if you wanted to buy them legally right there were still yeah. black market versions you could pick up
1: translations so. of the whole thing mm-hmm. yeah cuz i mean imagine what imagine if it ended at at the end of the fellowship of the ring the breaking of the fellowship i mean what <laughs> like say tolkien died before he could finish it Mm -hmm. Uh, wouldn't be the first time an epic fantasy ends like a third of the way through where the author says it's gonna go yeah so like what gosh how different would that feel what a completely different story would it be it would feel much more I I, yeah I don't know individualistic in a way because it it's your focus just on those characters and the fellowship and their. The geopolitical side of it is just kind of not really apparent yet. You don't, you don't yet have the full contest between Gondor and Mordor and and all the history that comes with that. You just got a band of adventurers going through mostly wilderness.
2: That's
1: just striking to me to think about that. You know, imagine if you only had that. I'm trying to think back actually to the first time I would ever have heard this story. I think I probably would have heard it before I read it. And what my impression would have been at the end of the Fellowship of the Ring. Like. Because that's where the film ends, right? It doesn't. They don't even. They didn't even try to do
0: mm-hmm.
1: beyond that. They could only do the, you know, the, the officially translated version of it. Um, like, what kind of what kind of story are you telling? If that's the end of the story, I guess, as opposed to the Return of the King and. And then even the more profound and and mystical stuff after that, you know, the, the having to go into the West, <laughs> because well, the the Shire has to get repaired, and then and then the the Ring bearer, you know, has to Ring bearers have to go West because because the Ring changes you. You can't stay in Middle Earth. So that's just a completely different story. I don't know. It's it's it's, yeah. it's, a, it's a to me to think of that.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, what do you think, Cora? Is this uh, story that? works if you transpose it to other like kind of less british cultures does it does it still does it still hold up does it lose something essential does it does it gain something that it wouldn't have otherwise oh.
2: yeah i don't think it has to lose anything essential but i think the thing that i'm toying with in this particular case is that i feel like there's a lot of cultural meaning in the interactions that i am just not getting as an american so For instance, the ending scene where Sam is going with Frodo and they, it it, it almost feels like a child-like boyish, like, hey, like, like, we're going to go continue the adventure and they leave everybody behind and the attention, for me, Mm -hmm. is completely lost because we don't even see those characters' reactions. We leave Boromir, he's fine, presumably, (laughs) (laughs) you know, like... That scene ends and they go off into the winter. Yeah, because they did yeah. that frequently uh, right, during yeah. this special it was you know, winter. winter a lot. returned often.
1: <laughs> I mean, that's yeah. the end of the whole thing in this version. Like I'm right. saying, there is no, they're not, they're not going on to more story. Like that's the end of the story. They decide oh, us two will stick together, and
2: right. And so, like, if I better understood, perhaps some of the underlying cultural meaning bet- behind that in- last interaction, right? And mm-hmm. how it may have translated some of the messaging or some of the overall story beats that we understand pretty well as Tolkien fans and as Lord of the Ring fans. I think I could see it working really well, but it's just really hard to tell when you don't have that cultural background yourself. So... I think when it comes to adaptations in other cultures it can definitely work and people make it work in terms of token inspired fiction and fantasy worlds and and they are able to translate things over very well but I think it it has to be very intentional what you're carrying over
0: Yeah I just did a class in the Honors program at our at our school. I'm having them read through till we have faces, but they also read, they also read Beauty and the Beast for for today. And I brought a couple of fairy tales that we didn't actually get in get a chance to, to look at, but one of them was a Russian version essentially of, of Beauty and the Beast, and a and also the Black Bull of Norway, which is a similar sort of sort of thing, right? And we talked also about the princess and the frog. So there's a way in which myth, if it's good enough, is going to just inevitably ad- be adapted to different cultures. And it will, it will, I think, lose things that it had in the original telling, but it will gain other aspects. And uh, one, one of the things that struck me, especially at, at the beginning of this movie is the way that they did Bilbo's party was really interesting. Yeah. I don't know <laughs> if it's just that I really liked the actor who played Bilbo or if, yeah. it, was, or if it was something else, but it's, it seemed so like I've oh, been to God. parties, I've been to parties in Romania and <laughs> Romanians are not Russians and they will tell you that. And I will tell you that. But they're closer culturally to Russians than British people and American people are. And there were aspects of that party that made me think, oh yeah, this is like a way that they have, you know, this, this kind of like loud talking of the host and like somebody like Obelia, Sackville Baggins, interrupts (laughs) him like right there in front of everybody and he kind of, okay, Obelia, okay, you know, and it's just, it's, in in some ways like some of the things that they adapted they were able to adapt so naturally and give them like another cultural spin and there are other parts that are like quite labored right and that are that do not seem natural at all <laughs> but then there are these other like little slavic touches right that that from a kind of like slavic peasanty cultural context just kind of makes sense since different from the context of the shire as tolkien paints it because it's because as Tolkien paints it is very much like this kind of like you know English country squire kind of person so 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 it's different but they manage to kind of in some ways make make aspects of it their own especially when they're like sitting around a table and eating and drinking or whatever like those are the parts that I found most natural um, but uh, yeah, I don't yeah
1: know. the it's social the, so the social situation. situations in it so yeah yeah i know what you mean it it definitely struck me as like oh yeah this is authentically russian stuff they're not they're not like trying to do what they think english or i don't know some western culture is is like you know they're just doing their own thing and and great yeah i mean and, and i didn't mean to suggest earlier that i thought myths can't translate between cultures at least not too much but there's just some i i was actually thinking more of that the sort of absolute geography of it the whole thing yeah. like i mean because it's it's just a fascinating and important part of fantasy at least it can be and and it clearly was for tolkien the way you know he, he's always like oh no it's not an allegory i have a cordial dislike of allegory and all that and it's like well then why does your fantasy world look almost exactly like Europe. I mean, like it's mm-hmm. just, it's hard to not draw some some conclusions about that. But so the thing that I'm most curious about in terms of may, maybe does the Russian element shed any light on it, is what is for me far and away the most fascinating thing about the film, which is the narrator. <laughs> It's just wonderful. So, I mean, it's also like profoundly mistaken in some ways to me because, I mean, so my, my little spiel that I'm constantly trying to impress upon student writers is that the one distinguishing thing about fiction is that it has a narrator. Nothing else has a narrator. Nothing else. That is the one thing you've got as a fiction writer that you can use. It's your most powerful tool. No one else has this tool. Everyone else, they're making film, they're making comics, they're whatever. They They can do everything that you can do just as well, except they don't have a narrator. So if you... If you sit down and you're like, I'm going to write a long story in prose, you had better be doing that because you plan to make good use of your narrator, whatever narrator that is. And Tolkien knew this. I mean, not everyone is like conscious of doing it, but but the masters know what they're doing and and they use a narrator well. And you've got that in The Lord of the Rings. You've got that in The Hobbit. Narrators can do things like describe scenery or provide information and they can even address an audience directly they are the storyteller it's fic- it's it's a storytelling moment story is a told thing and you need a teller to do it and so this film brings in this narrator guy who's so weird and so creepy yeah. i think unless maybe he's not to russians i don't know but i don't want to be too hard on him i liked like, him so many i loved him just like i Striking a match and like yeah. lighting a pipe and staring at you. And, and like that's it. And so it's just like, here's <laughs> just just in case you had somehow forgotten you were being told a story. Here's an extremely creepy reminder that you're being told by uh, told a total story, and it's this guy who's doing it. And and he's like in some sort of like cabin or something. There's a window, I think, and in the background. He's like in a nice plush study or whatever the I don't know, the Russians would call it or the British for that matter. And he's like lighting a pipe a lot and he's moving around a little bit and, and he's trying to be like a storyteller would actually be in, in a real storytelling situation. He's sort of moving around and like interacting with the audience as if the audience is actually there. So it's not just like a voiceover. It's not just the disembodied voice of Galadriel saying a few lines at the beginning of the movie, right. which is what you get in Peter Jackson. This is the real deal. It's like okay yeah this is film but screw it we're having a narrator as if it's prose fiction and you're reading it on the page and this is the guy we chose <laughs> so what do you guys right. make of that? i mean what did it do for you watching it to have him around
2: well and you're right that it wasn't just like you know his voice like a lot of the time it would cut to him and he's just looking at you like <laughs> what What do you think of that? (laughs) You know, letting out a puff from his pipe, which by the way, between him and the hobbits, I feel like somebody was constantly just carrying a pipe around in their mouth at all times. Yes. um, Or eating. Interesting. Or eating. Yeah, exactly. But for me, I mean, there was this really palpable warmth that I think exuded throughout the movie. And I think it started with him opening up the big storybook and like you know taking on that very tropey kind of obvious narrator perspective but then also now you remember that he opened up the story so when you see him next time you're like oh god I didn't actually expect you to show back up you're here still that you're reminded that you're kind of being led through this journey by this ominous but also very warm Russian man
0: yeah, what if he turns out to be Sauron in the end? I thought for a while, I was I was like, well, he kind of looks like the guy that I think is Sam out of the four of them. So maybe he's Sam when Sam's gotten older. And then I realized that the guy that I thought was Sam was actually a different guy. Because the guy I thought was Sam was the guy who was eating all the time. But that wasn't Sam.
1: <laughs> I would make uh, sense, though, for the whole story, right? If if which they weren't allowed to... Yeah, you know, translate. If it had been Sam at the yeah. end, he he yeah. becomes the literary executor of the Baggins estate or something yeah. like that. That's right. He seemed clearly so. Maybe, maybe you guys, maybe it was you guys took it differently, and this is where my cultural literacy just you know falls off the cliff. But to me, he seemed like no, he's actually he's actually a Russian. Like he's not in the world of the fantasy. He's not even trying to be. Yeah, he's dressed a little goofy, but I took that to be like some kind of historic Russian. Country gentleman type costume, not you you know, he's like he's like Tolstoy at the end of his days or something. (laughs) If Tolstoy had a rather different, you know, view of things in his old age, like he's like some country nobleman who's who's a lot like maybe the Hobbits or, or the kind of English aristocracy that that Tolkien had in mind for that. But but he seemed Russian. It seemed like the most Russian contribution to the thing. To the whole thing, to me, was that you've got this interesting figure. He had long hair, right, in, in the manner of like Russian Orthodox priests and and whatnot, and and a big beard too. So, in the 1980s and 90s, at least, Russians were not looking like that. I mean, like historically, they did though. The, the boyars had long beards and yeah, and they had long hair. And so he the the, the purpose of that that figure seemed to be to take this story, which is so not just English, but also like, frankly, Germanic. I mean, the arch enemy of Russia for (laughs) hundreds of years. But well, at least at least 100 years, because Tolkien's, you know, he's in all this Gothic stuff and and, and the the Norse stuff, too. And and the Russians have been foes of of both like the, the Swedes and, you know, the Scandinavians and the Germans for a really long time. So to take all that, this story that has all the these elements from cultural streams in, in the larger European civilization, which Russia has a very ambiguous, if not hostile relationship with, and to just sort of like put it under the aegis of this very Russian looking dude who, who's able to mediate the thing to an audience. And I thought that that, was a totally legitimate and well done move on the part of the film. And it seemed like a a natural thing for, for them to want to do rather than just make a straight up film. And it also does that wonderful thing of, of you know, serving to remind you, this is, this is a tale. This is a fantasy. This is, we're not pretending that this is real in the same way that we're all real, but, at the same time we are, you know, it's kind of the narrator's job to to actually dissimulate or to dissemble, I mean, a little bit and play like that. And it's, it's one of the reasons you have, you take pleasure in, in, in the, the sort of tropes that Tolkien indulged in and sort of trying to make this story. Oh, actually it's like, come down to us out of the deep past of, of, britain and europe you know it's this is actually a record we have of some kind it's it's a fake history and it's the same move it's just a, in a in a russian context i don't know if that makes sense but that was my feeling about it and i and i felt sympathy for that that move that that rhetorical strategy on their part it, it seemed like a a good idea and and a, and a thing that most most filmmaking just doesn't attempt you know it's not not going to bother with that
0: yeah, yeah. No, I like the narrator fine. I think of all the things that were done with with this, the narrator was one of the better ones. It's it's very hard not to laugh when you have just a yeah. shot of the narrator and he doesn't say anything, and then it goes back to the movie. He's just kind of <laughs> on the <at> <laughs> you know. uh, unless unless it's like some very artsy way of saying like you think you think you're the subject and we're the object, but really we're watching you.
1: Yeah. Um, but, that's exactly uh, what it, it's yeah. exactly what it, 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 i think they were they were playing around with like yeah i guess he's not i mean yeah he, he's strongly russian but he also gives off these vibes of like i'm from the fantasy world and i'm looking in a you you know like aren't you are not you bizarre by my standards yeah and like yeah. That.
0: <clears throat> yeah and i mean like you know artsy sort of avant-garde folks in you know, Moscow University and Leningrad Theater, things like that. You know, they were into Tolkien. They were into anything that was like kind of edgy and dangerous, and that they maybe shouldn't quite be into, right? So, so they might be trying to experiment as well. I, I mean, clearly there were some there were some moves in there that were. It reminded me a little bit of some certain episodes of a Star Trek where they got a little bit goofy and did some like weird experimental beatnik dancing or or whatever you know but uh, yeah
1: well do you guys know uh, the the novel Laris or the author eugene Vodolazkin at all
0: mm-hmm.
1: a great russian writer one of his his latest novel to be translated into english is about to be published and oh May. cool i have to write on it so i need to need to read it but yeah he wrote a novel i think in russian it was published in 2012 he's actually ukrainian it's worth saying or partly ukrainian and grew up in kiev but at some point relocated to saint petersburg Mm -hmm. writes in russian but anyway he's a very brilliant writer and and in Laris, Laris is like just this blow you out of the water landmark yeah it's
0: it's great it's like Brothers K meets magic realism. Yeah. Meets, like, it's it's just fun.
1: It's, it's crazy. And this thing that, that I have to read, the, the history of the island, the new novel, is like a described as a kind of, not s- sequel exactly, but somehow related to the Laris universe. Anyway, but in Laris, there's a weird moment where, and it's been years since I've read it, so I, I'm kind of going to bungle this, but the narrator... It, it, there's a strong narrative narrator's voice which is which is so and the narrator's not a character so I mean that's a really that's just a huge thing that's a classic move I feel like fiction is losing the ability to to work in that way but there's a narr- the narrator at one point does something kind of amazing and like you go out of this 15th century world and like suddenly the the character I think it happens to like a kind of hallucination of the the main character who's mm-hmm. a pretty kind of guy who's prone to visionary events and he like hallucinates the author in the real world like Vodoloskin or a guy who sounds a lot like Vodoloskin and some like youthful amorous episode of his in St. Petersburg and it's clearly like a modern Russian city and like you get this moment where the fantasy like explodes out of itself and is Mm -hmm. winking at the reader and is like (laughs) <laughs> By the way, this is all a fantasy, and I'm gonna have some fun with the narration. Yeah. This classic move that, like some you know, it's not postmodern at all. It's actually been going on for ages. And there's like there's there's almost I mean, people think there's jokes like this in in Homer. I mean, you know, it's it's yeah. this is stuff, but
0: I mean Don Quixote uh, certainly,
1: yeah, was, yeah. But even well before, like in much more medieval and earlier things, there there's sly. And not so sly yeah. um, gestures to the reader to say, like, you know, like, it wouldn't it be hilarious if this character in the 15th century hallucinates a very detailed vision of the guy who's writing the book you're holding? You know, <laughs> like, right? Wouldn't that just be the best? You know, and maybe it's not to most people. <laughs> people are like, man, writers are so self-obsessed, but they are. But, but still, it's just there's that that like possibility in fantasy I I, I think it's even greater in fantasy to do things like that where you can play little games and like send signals to the audience of like you know this is this is a a fun pleasurable profound but pleasurable thing we're doing we're telling stories and and we're aware that we're doing that and it's the narrator that lets you do all that kind of stuff and that's this just goes back to my earlier tirade about Peter Jackson and realist cinema, or whatever. If you give that up, yeah, and you, you can get great things in in by way of realism. You can get these just absolutely stunning artistic achievements like the Peter Jackson films. But what you lose is that sense of partnership with the audience. It's a it's a deal. It's a social situation. You, you're entering into a contract. There's lots of ways. It's a transactional. There's different ways of describing it. But the point is. You're participating as a as a. you're not just a, a passive consumer of entertainment. You're actually called upon to like acknowledge the fact that this is a specific kind of sacred social moment, the moment of storytelling. and And you're part of it. If you're not participating, if you're not present, it doesn't happen. It depends on you. And it's not just being done for your benefit, it's, it's, you're actually helping create a thing that exists between you and the, and the storyteller, the story and your, your culture, your entire culture kind of comes out of that. And so by having that narrator in there, you know, they, they, they actually do that in film and film just doesn't normally traffic in that kind of thing. So I don't know. I feel like that, I I don't know if they were actually consciously trying to do something like that or what, but, but, I do feel like there are potentially at least more more significant dimensions to it, even than just like finding a way to make it Russian or something like that. Which I, yeah. maybe I'm totally off base with that part. I don't know. But but the, the significance of the narrator is definitely there. Well, let's talk about
0: we're we're running we're running low on time. So let's just talk about other other things that you thought were good about this. We've talked about a few, right? Between the narrator and some of the sort of authentically Russian. Ways that they find to make it their own. It's obviously really easy to find awkward things. We'll get to the awkward things, but other things that you thought were especially strong about this adaptation.
2: I mean, I agree that it was really enjoyable watching the actor for Bilbo work, especially during the scene where they're all sitting around the table in the fire hall in Rivendell where they zoom in on his face and he does a really really good job of just kind of like really making you believe that he's having a psychotic break (laughs) you know (laughs) yes
0: (laughs) i liked it a little bit more than that moment in the jackson film where bilbo by aid of special effects like turns into a golem very suddenly and there's like a jump scare moment right
2: yeah I think that that scene is become or it, it is meme worthy in, in a way that the way that they did it in Creniaelli isn't you can take it a little bit more seriously I think which is nice
1: hmm.
0: yeah. and that actor actually is still alive he's 89 and he still acts in, in, in St Petersburg theater but uh, yeah
1: I wonder if they have a particularly lively theater scene. That's really interesting to me. That
0: the only really good article I read on this uh, this movie was from Variety, where they actually interviewed some of these actors who have been established for a while, and they all know each other. But but one of the things that they said was, you know, back in the day, and you know, it's it's in some ways it's a little bit predictable. Like back in the bad old communist days, everybody knew each other and was much more of a community, and now it's much more kind of like trying to get ahead as a profession and a a job right so yeah i mean it sounds like they had a pretty active theater scene and everybody sort of knows each other from from what i could gather anyway that's interesting i really liked the russian operatic version of the man in the moon came down too soon uh, (laughs) that gets sung at in in the tavern barlamin butterbur's tavern and then like frodo for whatever reason like starts dancing around with the lady who's singing it but I we could talk was, a lot uh, about
1: the music of it actually that would be yeah,
0: yeah yeah i mean some of the some of the music i thought i started watching movies when, when it was the 80s and there if you were watching a fantasy movie you just expected synth of course there would be synth it's fantasy totally. isn't it fantasy. right yeah, um, yeah. and I was maybe a little bit disappointed when the Peter Jackson films did not have any synth in them. So it's nice to have some synth and in in a version of the Fellowship of the Ring.
1: Yeah, um, no, you do. You you got to have it. It's just yeah. those of us born in the latter decades of the 20th century expect certain things. We became accustomed to certain things, and we like
0: to see. This. That's right.
1: That's right. <laughs> that's a good point about the peter jackson action did enya write songs for that or did she write them but then they didn't get actually put into the the movies themselves because she would have been using if not synthesizers then at least some some of a, a vocal uh what do you call it layering technique that would have sounded a lot like it i'm a huge enya fan by the way because i when i was born and i mean yeah i remember when her first albums came out <laughs> That's all I'll say about that. But yeah, yeah, I think
0: both Enya and Bjork, I believe, yes. have have songs in the like end credits of, it's
1: right. Uh, so it's like not the actual films themselves, like the, the main story part, it's like orchestral, right? It's it's old-fashioned yeah. film music, which is a wonderful thing about the Peter Jackson films. And and I mean, like I feel like music is its own separate. Topic in in film and musical drama since Wagner, basically, <laughs> it's, it's it's hard to sometimes even tackle. But man, the music in the the Soviet thing is pretty fascinating, and it's a really important thing too in Tolkien generally because, as I never tire of pointing out, the man was a poet, and for him, poetry meant lyric poetry, which is song. You know, it's just, so there's always people singing stuff various lays and whatnot that he wrote and somehow bring that into some kind of screen adaptation of Tolkien seems pretty important. But yeah, they did an interesting job with the pacing of it too. I liked how it just was in no hurry whatsoever to, to do anything. It just, I mean, that's also very novelistic, you know, it's very... just just leisurely turning the pages. Sure, we'll spend 20 minutes on this scene that, you know, if Peter Jackson were doing it, it would be, like, five minutes. and would still seem long, but, like, they're just going to dwell on whatever they feel like dwelling on it. And it's going to – and it does all – you can do all kinds of things. You know, you can, like, dilate a moment of consciousness in a character, or you can just, like, get a lot of detail and fun in there with different people, like, in the party or something. Or in the inn I, I like that it's a really i feel like the world is just the world including the literary world is ever more plot driven and like no one can do anything about this and when every now and then you stumble across some archaic fossil that just doesn't give a crap about the plot very much it's it's kind of refreshing
0: yeah i like the i like the nightmare music that you get that the, like every time you see the ring or or the yeah. dark riders or whatever else it's like this nah, 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 kind of kind of sound Do
1: you know at all where the music came from for it like did they source um, it or did they actually write some of it i mean what, i believe i believe cora looked into that
2: i mean the only thing that i found on the music was that the narrator character was played by the series composer andre romanov who was also happens to be the keyboardist for russian rock band aquarium
1: of course this all this makes so much sense
2: noise that they would make when they when they anybody handled the ring it 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 reminded me of that sound effect that's created by bending a sheet of metal back and Mm -hmm. forth (laughs) saw
1: yeah playing the musical saw Yeah. yeah i'm only disappointed he's not the bassist i feel like that that would have been really the cream on the cake but that is man that makes so much sense that like beautiful awkwardness of it. like who can we get to play the narrator oh hey the composer let's use to get the keyboardist in here he looks like a narrator
0: hey he he's as good as anybody else in in the movie he has some acting chops I think.
1: oh no yeah yeah he's the man has been on a stage They've all been on a stage. Even the I mean, he's not just a composer, he's he's in a band. I mean, that it goes back to that initial surprise that I found so fitting. These guys are stage actors or accustomed yeah. to the stage. Yeah. And how often do you run across someone anymore who has spent time on a stage? You know, it's like it's like a it's a medium that's very eyebrow and you know i just just recently read a new play that had been published and it got performed a few weeks ago at the beginning of lent which is when it's set and so it was, but i didn't go to see it you know it was, it was produced in new york and i'm not going to travel to new york to see a play and you know, I, if i want to see a play where i live there's not a lot of options So i mean it's just not like a, a major thing anymore yeah um, yeah
0: uh, yeah absolutely unless you happen to live in a in a country where they just film the place and right. and,
1: and that's you know, all they can out, do
0: yeah on television i i will say one of the things again the director really wanted to add in other touches so they did things like rented horses and yeah. you know and, and shot a lot of footage of them riding around outside and did green screen effects right so you got tom bombadil for some reason as i mean Kudos to them for having Tom Bombadil in at all. But you have yeah. Tom Bombadil as a giant and, you know, because because they could take advantage of the green screen effects and have him. And it, it, it I guess it highlights his sort of supernatural status. Right. The fact that he's they, like
1: bigger than the world. Yeah. Yeah. He's, right. he's like yeah. bigger than the world of Middle Earth somehow. One of the most enigmatic characters in all of the Legendarium.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah and and he's still enigmatic in this uh, in yep. this
1: adaptation <laughs> more enigmatic <laughs> uh, than ever <laughs>
0: yeah
1: yeah i mean he's bigger in russian yeah
0: there are other things I, i'm i'm kind of interested in this question of things that they had to change because they didn't have the budget for something you know grander versus things that they decided to change such as some of the names mm-hmm this repeated they used the phrase winter is coming you know long before or at least a few years before george r r martin ever uses the phrase winter is coming because the only footage they could get of people riding around in horses was in the snow and so they kept having to clarify for the audience winter is coming again in here it's still summer but when we go back out there in the unenchanted world it's going to be winter they, uh, they repeat this many, many, many times. So I thought that was great. What about in terms of, uh, Corey, you looked into the the names a little bit. What, what did they change?
2: Right. So the only one that I noticed just based on hearing it was the fact that the Bagginses are not Bagginses in this adaptation. They're the torbins, Torba meaning bag. So that's just something that's going to make a little bit more sense to the Russian ear as far as I can tell. And these... Name changes seem to be based on what was changed in the 1982 Russian translation. Yeah. The yeah. official one. Hmm. Right. So Sam Gamgee becomes Sam Scromby. I have no idea what that means. Pippin is Pin. I think you noticed this too, Chris, where it came up in the the English subtitles for the YouTube video, where they just kept calling him Pin. Um, mm-hmm. And apparently they tr- translated it entirely from Pippin Took to Pin Kroll. Again, don't know. I think that's just a surname that they decided to put in instead. Brandybuck is Brindigiek, and Goldberry is Zolotinka, which means Gold Flake. So just some interesting changes. I think Lobelia also went underwent a full mm-hmm. name change to to kind of localize it a little bit better and and make it make a little bit more sense just to the russian ear but i did not attempt to write it down because i didn't want to have to say it
0: <laughs> yeah i i could still i could still recognize Lobelia, but you're right. Her name was her name was changed. I I just love that she just comes right out and is rude at Bilbo's party. You know, which is which is very like not her an English character. thing to do, right? But it, yeah, uh, but it
1: but it it's her it's her character in the story. I mean that yeah, to the extent she she's distinct
2: very much. She's really the, the the first character I noticed because in the dancing scene, she's not really like dancing with people she's doing this hands in the air kind of like back and forth fists they all
1: are they're just kind of like gyrating around and
2: i mean
0: i think that brings us to the awkward things about about this movie and 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 there were there were a few but yeah the dancing is is definitely i don't know if it said it doesn't age well or it was not very successful dancing in the first place or but some of the some of the dances were, yeah, were, were interesting anyway.
1: Yeah, it's like they we were trying to like, what, what would a totally different culture imagine dance to look like? Well, it couldn't be, you know, like graceful and formulaic the way it is in every other culture. So let's make it spasmodic and irritating. <laughs>
0: yeah well i mean i think again that's actually how most
1: people dance now so i mean yeah
0: i mean it's part of the avant-garde piece right realistic Uh, yeah (laughs) yeah just like i mean it's it's the kind of dancing that they have in like you know the peanuts christmas special or in or in or in star trek in the beatnik scenes to to bring that up again or or funny face the one with audrey hepburn and fred astaire they they uh, anyway Also beat Nikki, right? Yeah, right. uh, Somebody's uh, idea of that. Yeah, not not traditional folk dances, right? (sighs) Which is is interesting because you'd think like they could make it traditional Slavic folk dance. That probably would have been pretty cool with the you know USSR as well to do that, but they decided to go on this like odd avant-garde, non-dancy dance direction.
1: That's a good point. there were there were different times in the history of the the USSR when it was possible to hearken back to folk culture of the pre-revolutionary period, the Czarist period. there were although you had to be careful about it. So there's a, a, a writer I love Vladimir Soluchin, who was active mainly in the 60s in the the Khrushchev thaw and he was part of some group. Or, or movement called like the vil- village prose or something. So they, they were sort of like the Wendell Berries of of Russia in the fifties, late fifties after Stalin died, and and sixties, and um, yeah, they had these. He's the guy who wrote in "Searching for Icons in Russia." That's the English title. I think the Russian title is "Black Boards" because that's what these things looked like—these black boards. Mm-hmm. That had been Again, grimed up over time and they had all been you know neglected since 1917 and so they had become these blackboards and you'd have to figure out like is this a new icon or newish or is this like an old valuable icon so it's, it's this incredible book searching for icons in russia it's just a fascinating and beautiful spiritually uplifting kind of book but Anyway, the point is like there there were he he was one of these guys who like tried to celebrate traditional Russian rural life and there were different times when it was feasible to do that. But I do think during many periods of the Soviet history, I'm not an expert on this, but that, that kind of thing would get pretty pretty frowned on because, you know, it's going to harken back to Orthodox Church and and you know pre-communist life and they're not they're not too into that i think a lot of that stuff got really deliberately erased and forgotten so it's kind of sad you know like whereas you know think of like what an english equivalent would be like if they had obviously they didn't do this but they could have depicted the hobbits doing like a, a maypole dance or something like that the sort of thing that has never been i mean yeah sure it's been Maybe like in parts of the Reformation, it was, it was a little bit suppressed, but mm-hmm. it really just it kind of died out a slow natural death from the growth of industrial modernity. And then the Shire, in the Shire, it, it, you know, a great opportunity to to bring in all this like rural localist agrarian type ideas. If you, if you wanted to go that route, you know, Tolkien was is pretty sympathetic to that kind of stuff, but I don't I don't know if I saw so much of that in it. Instead, it was a kind of crazy sixties-ish psychedelic, you know, like trying to trying to be kind of like new and edgy in that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, just because it was like a Western thing. There's sort of different ways they could have taken a shot at the regime. They could right. either have been like traditionalist Russian, you know. Yeah you know bringing in all that that rural stuff that orthodox stuff or they could have been like crazy western liberating 60s right they did a bit of both but there were definitely elements of the latter in that in the film as well and those usually felt awkward to me like i mean well they all felt awkward like i was saying earlier all of that stuff about the narrator and how traditional russian he seemed like that's where they're doing that traditional stuff and yeah sure that seems awkward too but but the the psychedelic like trippy stuff was weird too and yeah it's like trying too hard sort of like 10 years too or 20 years too late and you know it's like no like no one wants to see an aging hippie you know hippies look good when they're young and they're like at the time when it happened but like hippies in the 80s or later (laughs) it's always like come on man like this is this time has passed you're you're not you can't do this anymore and and there was a little bit of that feeling with parts of the movie it was like yeah we've been this we've been through this before let's not you know if i wanted to see things that way i would have taken some lsd before watching the movie Mm
0: -hmm. i don't want to
1: do that thank you very much
0: yeah, there, there's a decidedly trippy aspect to all of this. And I think okay. I think you could I think it could view it two ways. You could view it as, well, you know, this this is Tolkien being interpreted in a way like you said, Jonathan, that's not realist, right? Or you could also interpret it as they're you know, they're they're trying to be the West in the 60s on, on a shoestring budget, and and it's not particularly yeah. successful. All right final thoughts because we are we are pretty well out of time. Cora, I go I go to you first. Feel free to highlight anything else that you thought was awkward or or anything else that that you thought was great about the movie.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think something that does contribute to that psychedelic experience, it are our what I only assumed to be sort of the limitations of what they had to work with. I mean, when they had lots of people moving in front of the green screen, there was a real like frame rate tank in terms of just how much you could capture at once. There was a lot of edge blurring and like white and green kind of working its way into the scenes. And so that, of course, it's like So bad that it gets to the point that it feels like it's really just kind of stretching your imagination to try to sort of be in the scene with the weirdness. So I almost even say that that's kind of a cool thing about it, even though it is not necessarily like a fun experience. And yeah, I mean, I think just in general, it gives off the feeling I, I, I made a note on the costumes utilized, I wouldn't necessarily say designed, maybe, but you know, <laughs> that were used where it's, you know, this mix between like, we're trying to channel our inner medieval. Also, we have these folk costumes, we have these more Russian style hats, we have this peasant thing going on. Uh, all at once, it feels like we're at the Ren Fair, and we're, we're also LARPing or live-action role-playing. And all of this comes together. It it almost feels like a sort of warm, happy high school or college-level like production that came together mm-hmm. that people really cared about, that mm-hmm. uh, they wanted to make happen. And at the end of the day, there is something very endearing about that. So that's what I liked yeah. about it.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well said. Well said. And and yeah. if you like polka dotted ascots, this is a place to go.
1: There, are quite a few,
0: <laughs> and they're right. glorious.
1: What's stopping you from dressing that way, Chris? I mean, that's right. On. That's right. <laughs> uh, or or
0: with, I I couldn't tell. I mean, I assumed that all the hobbits were wearing wigs, right? I I I don't think that was their. I don't think that was Frodo's hair. I I hope so.
1: Yeah, very much yeah, uh,
0: but but there was an interesting kind of orangish
1: wig. one guy her. who had like a his hair kind of slicked back might have been i yeah. forget which one it was that one guy been.
0: had one of the hobbits had like dark lipstick yep. one of them had it looked like he had glasses but maybe he didn't but he was constantly eating like that Chevy one shell. with a
2: huge like mutton chops
0: yes yeah yeah, yes. yeah. was um, that meant to be pippin I think so. Yeah, I think because I
2: think the one that was wearing lipstick was Mary. I think.
0: Yeah. That's one
2: other issue that you and I discussed briefly earlier was like we didn't even know who Sam was until Rivendell. Like, yeah, he thought it was the wrong person. I just didn't even like. I wasn't even sure he was there. Like. (laughs)
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. We didn't get much, you know, Frodo Sam connection because they're like trying to move things along sort of in a meandering way or you're just focusing on different things right uh, i th- i thought for me like if you like bad good films which i really do it gets better and better because the last place they go to is la florian which is there there are these elves kind of dancing around at them and like ringing bells in their face or making them eat food or playing <laughs> some sort of Flute or clarinet at them and, and, and making them each kind of fall over asleep. Galadriel is 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 interesting. Apparently, like right after filming that, I think it was Galadriel I was reading about, she just left the country. So she's like, she's like preparing to leave the USSR in the middle of all of the upheaval. As she's as she's playing this part, but she does this kind of like weird Taoist speech about how like there's a dark star and a light star, and yeah. the light star only looks light, and and is like distinctly. Non Tolkienian, yeah, in, yeah. In kind of one a, of the, the weirdest philosophy. parts of
1: the whole thing.
0: Yeah, like and where did
1: that come from? Not Russian either. It's just like,
0: yeah. I think of like Chernobog and Bielobog, right? Like the like the Slavic mythic god of light and darkness, who I mainly know through through American gods. But uh, yeah, but they they have some kind of like a light and dark balance thing, and and yeah, in some of their well, pain.
1: That, right. I almost wish, yeah, I I wish I could understand the Russian in that part. Yeah. I don't don't know what, what is she actually saying? But she, she, she's tempted, she's
0: tempted with the ring and she has this like vision, I guess of herself as an old lady crying. (laughs) And then she decides not to take the ring, which I, I Yeah, I guess the idea is just it would make her unhappy, ultimately, as like the dark queen of the world. That's how she would end or something like that. And then she directs Frodo's attention into the magic mirror or or the pool or whatever, and Sauron actually has a line. And he he actually speaks, and he said, "It's me, Sauron, the Dark Lord." <laughs>
2: <laughs> which is uh,
0: which is fantastic, and uh, yeah. Now entering uh, the ring. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean he he sounds like he sounds like a professional wrestler. In Sauron has joined the chat. Yeah, but, uh, but but yeah, so. Oh, there, there's, there's a lot of awkward stuff. A lot of just really fun stuff. Ultimately, you know, good on these folks for taking something that apparently they kind of loved, and and on the on the director as well, Natalia. I believe she went by Natasha. Sarah, uh, I always forget how to say her last name. Natasha
1: um, S. I was just
0: uh, yeah. There you go. There you go.
1: She'd be in a Russian. But
0: uh, yeah, good on her for you know, putting in extra effort to try to incorporate special effects. And clearly this is a labor of love with no budget, just like this podcast is. And (laughs) I'm, yeah, it, it, it was, it was fun to watch. Totally. So, so. Jonathan Cora thank you both for joining us it's late Cora where can people follow you and find you
2: oh yeah I mean you can find the most recent stuff that I've written and done in the world you can find on zeldadungeon.net feel free to look me up we write news stories articles we're very excited about the upcoming new game in the series so we're very active over there yeah that's where you can find me
0: very cool and and Jonathan how about you
1: uh every month I write at the blog of slant books, which is called Close Reading. I tend to write on new things that are being published. I'll be writing about Eugene Votoloskin soon. Nice. Uh, Jessica Hooten Wilson's new book, things like that. So uh, that's a good place to find me. Although Jonathan Geltner dot dot com or something like that. I yeah. <laughs> have a yeah. substack.
0: And definitely check out Jonathan's debut book, Absolute Music, which we had an episode on a a, a little while ago. So, uh, yeah, once you've you've read it, please listen to it. All right. Well, thank you both so much. This is super fun. We could go on, but uh, but we'll we'll call it a night. Thank you, listeners. And uh, we'll see you next time. Cheers.
2: All blessed encounter, full of joy, unscheduled scheduled on the decent plan, with here an addict of Tolkien, there a Charles Williams fan.